Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our sixth episode, our sixth and final episode of Medical Matters Season 2. I'm Sunil. And I'm Kendall. And we're a couple of medical students who deeply enjoy bringing on experts from across healthcare and medicine to share their unique insights and stories. Today, we have the pleasure of having Robert Fulbright with us. Robert is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine and a clinical bioethicist with Sutter Health's program in medicine and human values. He received his Juris Doctor degree from the University of Kansas and afterwards completed a clinical ethics fellowship at California Pacific Medical Center. And he also completed his master's and leads in clinical healthcare ethics. Welcome, Robert. And we are very excited for an interesting discussion on law and healthcare policy today. Well, thank you both very much for the, the invitation. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what your your topics that you'd like to cover, as well as the opinions that you all have on some of the ethical issues in healthcare. Absolutely. And we've got a lot of them. We, uh, we came up with a ton of questions today, just because we we're so excited to bring on an ethicist. We've been meaning to do it for, for so long, really, for about two years. Uh, and this is, you know, this is the first time that we get a chance to speak with one. Uh, so in that sense, we're just really glad to you know, be speaking with you. Um, so just to kind of start off, one of our, one of our first big questions is, um, you know, ethics, I think in general, it, it, it discusses the idea of whether the things that, that we can do or that we, the, the things that, that we can do right now or the things that we may do in the future. Um, the question is not necessarily whether we should do those things, or sorry, it's not necessarily what, whether we could do those things, but more so whether we should do those things. And, you know, that's why I think ethics is such a, such an immense draw for me. Um, and I, I really just captivates us both as a field. Um, on that note, I guess, what kind of sparked your interest in ethics and like what, what inspired you to dedicate a life to it? Yeah, so uh, uh, my father is a physician. So I, I grew up always uh, kind of interested and in, in very respecting those in the, the field, certainly the, the work and effort that he put in uh, with his patients. Um, when I was in law school, I had the good fortune of coming across some some books on medical ethics, but I, I never thought it might be a career. And I was uh, fortunate enough when I graduated from law school to end up working at uh, Sutter Health. And they have a robust program in bioethics and a fellowship that they offer. And I wanted the opportunity, having learned that there's actually a career to work as a clinical ethicist or a bioethicist, uh, to complete their fellowship. Uh, that required me going back to school. So I went to University of Leeds to get my master's in healthcare ethics to qualify for the fellowship. And kind of ever since then have been working as a bioethicist. I think that it offers an opportunity to be involved in very interesting topics, but also an opportunity to try and really help some of the more challenging cases that come uh, forward in the hospital. And, you know, when we are fortunate, we're able to really help both the medical team, uh, physicians, nurses, case managers, social workers, as well as the patient and, and the, say, family or friends involved. And I think that really gives me a lot of passion to to continue forward in in ethics and and supporting uh, hospital ethics committees. 
really interesting. And it's great that we have you on today to hear from the policy and ethics standpoint, because as students, we hear a very different side of medicine, a very clinical side. But it's important to also ask the questions that Sunil mentioned of, of should we be doing the things that we might be capable of doing? And on that note, I wanted to start by asking, um, given your expertise, what are some of the most ethically controversial topics in healthcare in your experience? Um, from our standpoint, from what we studied, uh, reproductive technologies, genomics, those are usually kind of what we think of or what comes to mind for us, but we wanted to know if there are other, other areas that might not be so familiar to us as medical students or, or even to those not in medicine. Yeah, well, uh, now that we're kind of getting into the, the ethical issues and, and some uh, thoughts and opinions from from myself as well as the two of you, I should clarify that you know all of these uh, thoughts and opinions are are my own. Uh, I'm certainly not representing the University of Nevada Reno School of Medicine, nor am I representing Sutter Health. I'm just sharing the thoughts that I have based on the experiences I have had. Um, I think when when I'm talking about kind of my background and current role. Uh, it's really focused on the hospital and clinical setting. Um, so there are a lot of very interesting topics in, in ethics uh, with respect to medicine that I don't see a lot of uh, in my day-to-day -day job. I would say that the probably most interesting thing that I am often involved with with regards to the ethics committees and uh, the the patients within the hospital really comes down if if we're trying to to simplify things to decision making and a lot of that comes down to who is a part of the decision making process i think historically uh, we know that physicians really had a very paternalistic role in decision making with regards to what would happen uh, with patients and that led to a lot of reasonably reasonable concerns with regards to uh, what was being done, whether or not it was being done truly in the best interest of the patient, and certainly uh, wasn't giving the patients the opportunity to uh, provide consent. And we saw a lot of evolution in the field of bioethics with regards to the idea of uh, ensuring that a patient has the opportunity to participate in decision-making and provide informed consent, whether we're talking about clinical uh, treatment or we're talking about, say, research. So I think that those are really the, the biggest issues that we face on, a, say, a day-to-day -day basis. I think if we're talking more big picture, um, a lot of the challenges that, that I see with regards to what is currently going on in, in our healthcare systems uh, also expands outside the hospital with regards to say access to care, with what will happen to a patient after they are discharged to the hospital and what sort of uh, support that, that they may have uh, following their hospitalization. Um, so I think those are really the kind of the day-to-day -day issues that I'm most often dealing with. And you know, my role is really the, the idea of applying some of these ethical principles or ethical theories towards clinical care 
and how can we try and come up with uh, what may be a less than ideal solution, but the best solution based on the circumstances of the case. Um, so I think when it comes down to it, it's it's really about decision making. And I think what we're often trying to emphasize is making sure that we're making decisions that are within, say, medical standards or or justified based on the physician's clinical expertise, uh, but take into account patients' values and preferences uh, with respect to how they would like to live their lives, uh, how they would, what burdens they're willing to take on with treatment and what their goals are in the future um, following uh, medical intervention. Yeah, that's, I really, I really like that idea of, I mean, just, just, just describing the complexity that goes into just a single one, a single one of these decisions. I mean, say, for example, someone getting uh, a liver transplant, uh, being, being near the top of the list, but maybe they don't necessarily have uh, the best record when it comes to um, their alcohol use, uh, alcohol use history. Um, making these kinds of decisions, it just sounds so, so multifaceted because you're, you're balancing so many different, different interests um, that ultimately are trying to aim for the patient's best interest. Um, but may not be doing so in ways that agree with each other. Um, and I, I think, yeah, trying to reconcile those, that, that sounds like one of the most exciting things about the field. Um, I don't, I don't know if I could, if I could do that myself single-handedly, but um, I definitely want to be involved in those sorts of decisions in the future for sure. Uh, and one, well, one thing you mentioned, Oh, sorry. Good. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think you should give yourself credit and certainly now and in the future that, Physicians, nurses, everyone on the medical team are often uh, trying to resolve some of these ethical issues on a, on a real day-to-day -day basis. And most of the time, they are able to do so, right? And, and hopefully, in conjunction with the patient, family, or friends. When it comes to the ethics committee, uh, we're generally involved when all of the efforts from the physicians or nurses and uh, other members of the medical team have not yet led to some resolution. So I, I strongly believe that, you know, physicians and nurses, everyone that's involved in uh, care in the hospital is, is facing these issues and generally resolving them uh, through their own uh, expertise on a consistent basis. It's, it's really the ethics committee that comes in to help when those efforts haven't quite led to some resolution. Can you give us an example of when the ethics committee is typically called upon and a specific case recently or, or in the past um, when you were asked for help? Yeah, I think it just speaking in general, uh, cases that we often see uh, involve a few different topics that are, that are commonly presented to the ethics committee. Um, some may involve some form of conflict, whether that's uh, within the, the medical team, whether say there's not necessarily an agreement from a clinical perspective, what is the best path forward. Uh, some may occur when, say, a patient and a member of the medical team or a patient's family or, or friend don't agree with, say, recommendations from the medical team. There may also be situations where uh, we have a a patient who unfortunately doesn't have any support 
uh, say, family or friends who are able to help advocate, help participate in decision-making process, and the patient is is not able to give in some diminished cognitive function. So in those situations, what we would call, say, an unrepresented or unbefriended patient, the ethics committee can help the medical team come up with a plan of care that arguably is in the patient's best interest, uh, using whatever information that we're able to get on the patient's history and, and known values and preferences. Um, so those are just a couple of examples of, of cases that, that come before the medical, or the medical team asks the ethics committee to, to provide recommendations. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, that, that's actually a role that I didn't uh, fully appreciate is that, yeah, you guys are essentially uh, uh, not, not, not a stand-in, but a supplement to, uh, to an individual who may not necessarily have the support system uh, as is. Um, and, you know, that being said, uh, one, of, one of the most important factors that, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you consider uh, when, when making these sorts of decisions are the social determinants of health. So, you know, things like uh, patients, uh, zip code, right? So a zip code is probably the single biggest indicator of a person's uh, health outcomes in general, also their career pro- uh, career prospects, earning potential, so many different things, life expectancy, uh, their mental health status, whatnot. Um, and, you know, all these factors, they, they just play such a big role in terms of how a patient can receive care, access care, um, and really, really interact with the healthcare system. Um, and that being said, you know, we look at, we look at other countries, I think, you know, some good examples might be the UK, uh, where you spend a little bit of time. So maybe, maybe you might have some insight there. Uh, the Netherlands, uh, Germany, also some good examples, uh, where they really do uh, kind of gear their healthcare system towards investing in those social determinants. Um, and, you know, they do it in their own ways, their own culturally tailored ways. Um, so I guess in the context of America, what do you think we could do to, to better address like these social determinants of, of health, social determinants of health, um, but in an American, a culturally sensitive way for us? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think it, it definitely um, expands uh, topic uh, outside, say, the hospital, right? How can we try and help individuals have, say, equal opportunity uh, for success in our society? Um, I think that you know, there's a lot of different ways that we could improve. Obviously, some of the countries that you mentioned, um, they have a different approach with regards to, say, healthcare or even education. Um, And I think that that our country seems to have a very big focus on uh, individualism, uh, and whether that's the idea that it's really up to the, the individual to uh, take care of their own uh, responsibilities in order to succeed. But I think we also could certainly take a approach of the idea that, you know, we would all be better off if we are able to help others in our society. And there's a lot of different ways that that can be done. Um, even if it was something of, of the nature of really targeting some of the, like you mentioned, zip codes that have been shown to identify, uh, unfortunately, lower likelihood of, of positive outcomes with regards to, say, their health care, with regards to their 
education with regards to their uh, professional careers. And I think if, if we were more open to the idea that we are all benefited by each other's success, right? Uh, that we may have a, a more accepting uh, culture with regards to resources to people who are not in our immediate circles, right? And, and may not look like us, may not have the same uh, national background, religious background, things of that nature. And so I think, I think just some openness to the idea that, you know, we ought to be helping each other when we can. Um, there's a lot of different ways that that could be done. Uh, and there's a, probably a lot of hurdles that go along with that. But certainly from a healthcare perspective, um, what I would certainly be in favor of or advocating for would be uh, greater equality with regards to access to healthcare. And that would probably require some significant changes with regards to how people um, are able to, to get insurance, right? We, we've seen some increase uh, in the access to, to insurance uh, with you know, the recent changes with regards to the Affordable Care Act. And I, th I think that's certainly shown some benefit. Um, there's many people that argue for the idea of, you know, kind of one payer system for all. Um, and I think that's something that other countries have seen some success with. Uh, other countries say have a, a basic level and then the people who could, could pay for more, uh, do pay for more that may get them uh, greater access or say more specialized access. But I think whatever could be done to create equal access to healthcare and certainly a more preventative approach to healthcare, I think would benefit um, our society. I, I think that unfortunately, the way that it works out for a lot of individuals is that without the access to healthcare, they are ultimately in the hospital in a much worse state than they would have been. And that does then have an impact on their, their overall outcome. But from a societal perspective, it's very likely that it probably has a outcome, a negative outcome on say the cost of care as a whole, right? If we're not able to take care of patients at uh, a more preventative approach, then we're taking care of patients who are much worse off from a clinical perspective. That costs more money, that takes more time, that certainly is a lot more um, time from the physicians, the nurses, everyone involved in the patient's care, more time in the hospital, which we know is, is very expensive. So whatever we could do to increase access for a greater number of people and a more preventative approach medicine, as opposed to say an emergency room approach, I think would be certainly in our society's best interests. Agreed. And I think it's great that you mentioned individualism because essentially that's what America is founded in and it's, it's rooted in, in democracy and autonomy and pioneer spirit. Yeah. Yeah. But subsequently it also has posed as we've seen barriers to public health and healthcare access. And I think you hit it spot on about um, the kind of communal approach versus um, kind of individualized 
everyone for themselves type of medicine that we see in our country. And I think the individualism also manifests in another area that I wanted to ask you about, which is the topic of transplant donations. So from what I understand, there are two schools of thought regarding consent from the deceased. The first is explicit consent, which is where the deceased patient must have clearly, clearly expressed consent, which is usually what we see in our country. There's a couple states that have proposed otherwise, but for the most part, explicit consent is necessary. But on the other hand, there is presumed consent where ethicists assume that individuals would consent to donation to benefit society unless objection clearly stated otherwise. So from what I'm understanding, it's either opt-in versus opt-out. And currently we're under the opt-in type of model. In contrast, Spain, for example, has instituted in 1979 the presumed consent model and Spain also has one of the highest rates of disease donation. And I wanted to get your thoughts on whether this opt-out model would be feasible in the U.S. or if it would contradict the democracy and everything that we stand for. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I certainly have uh, opinions and, and have had the um, opportunity to participate in discussion with with uh, medical teams and families in situations where people have not made their thoughts clear. So I'm happy to share those. But I feel like I've been taking up a lot of the the time in the discussion, and I was curious maybe if you two would like to share your thoughts on whether or not we should be looking for more uh, change to our op to an opt out system rather than our current opt in system. Yeah, I mean, it's a, so this is a really interesting topic. I actually uh, didn't didn't you know get get much chance to think about this, but I guess my my initial thoughts go something like this: um, is that you know as as we were speaking about before, uh, you know, America is founded on this individual individualistic approach to to most problems. Really, uh, it's like a you know, for better or for worse, it's more pull yourself up by your bootstraps as opposed to, you know, uh, the entire society is going to come to help you approach. Um, but that being said, that's not necessarily how we need to guide, to guide every decision. And it doesn't need to be um, the guiding influence, right? We can be flexible. And I think in this case, there's probably some room for, I think what might be, what might be a good middle ground, um, mm -hmm. sort of a communitarian approach as opposed to, as opposed to being too individualistic, too, uh, you know, communistic but um or like whatever's the, the most federal top-down approach you know what i mean and so i think having that mid-level of allowing localities allowing states to probably make this decision uh would be the most impactful way i, th I think that this would need to be a more localized decision uh because some areas uh some constituencies probably wouldn't be that comfortable with it some would uh, and i think it's important to give them the opportunity you know to make that decision um i agree and i think that the state level or the local level is the most productive way in affecting change because if it works in one area that gives the potential for such a law or, or any law to expand to the national level but that being said maryland and pennsylvania proposed the opt-out levels before but were not successful in passing mm -hmm. so i'm not sure if it's just maybe a demographic thing but it doesn't i don't, I don't know if if Americans as a whole would be receptive to this idea of opting out for the greater benefit of society. 
uh, as ethicists have posed? Yeah, so uh, from my perspective, I, I think there's certainly a, a good argument for taking a opt-out type model. But as you mentioned, uh, there have been some unsuccessful attempts to change uh, states' legislation. Um, I think at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is is probably some increased education uh, so that people have a better understanding of what organ donation is as far as the opportunity to help others, right? And if if I think of it from kind of our current opt-in approach, you know, we see that patients, the majority of patients, for example, don't complete an advance uh, directive, right? A few patients have clearly written out uh, what their wishes would be with regards to, say, end-of-life care. And it often comes down to decision from, say, a family member, uh, a durable power of attorney, uh, even a close friend in, in some states where that's allowed with regards to organ donation. And if we were able to provide some more education about how organ donation is really able to help those in need after an individual has passed, I think there might be a better opportunity to make some changes, including exploring some opportunity for a more opt-out approach. If there was to be a, say, opt-out approach, I think that we would need to do things that we still haven't even done with our whole opt-in approach. And from my perspective, just thinking about things logistically, I think that there's opportunities with regards to how conversations are held with uh, primary care providers, uh, or even if there were, say, opportunities in other avenues, for example, um, say, healthcare insurance, not necessarily with regards to organ donation, but with regards to uh, education and information about, say, an advanced uh, directive, right? Anything that we could do to try and encourage some education of the the patients that we deal with so that they are able to very clearly make their wishes known. Because oftentimes we're, we're dealing with uncertainty, right? So before there's going to be the likelihood of some significant change to like, say, a opt-out system, which I think is certainly probably in the best interest of, you know, our total society, because that would increase the amount of organ donations. Uh, we need to make sure that our, our society has a better understanding of how organ donation can really help and probably need to spend time addressing fears that people have with regards to what organ donation means and uh, when it might happen, for example, right? Uh, is there really a good understanding of how the process of organ donation, uh, when it starts, right? And, and when a, a deceased individual is a potential candidate for uh, donating organs, right? So I think if we can start with some organ, uh, some education, then then we may have a better opportunity to try and advocate for what I think would be in our society's best interest, the opt out model, because it would an opt out model would likely increase 
the organ donations to people in need, right? And and I think we'd we'd certainly see a greater likelihood of success with an opt-out model if it was an opportunity to really make it clear how people could opt out, right? Mm-hmm. I think if, if if individuals think that it's likely that no matter what, that their organs are going to be donated, even if say maybe that's against their religious beliefs. If if there's some clarity with regards to how an opt-out model would work, there's probably going to be a greater likelihood of success. And I I just don't know what the say education and campaign uh, was in the states that attempted to do so and were not successful. Uh, but I imagine that a lot of individuals had had uncertainty about what an opt-out model really meant. Yeah, I think that the education aspect is really critical. Um, We learn about informed consent, and I think this is no exception. And it's interesting that you mention education efforts because, you know, Spain, they have highest rates of disease donation due to the presumed consent model in 1979. But from what I've read, they also have really high rates of accessibility to donation information. And in fact, they have donor teams that often are comprised of not only donor specialists involved in organ donation, but also the primary care providers whom the patients are more familiar and comfortable with. And I think just having that accessibility and comfort with with knowing what would happen and and, and the knowledge of, of all that donation entails is probably um, somewhat of a confounding variable to the high success rate of disease donation in Spain. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to say, like, I, I definitely agree with uh, what both of you guys are saying. So in, in, in a lot of respects, uh, I think that whichever way, whichever direction we, we decide, um, I think, you know, making a more concerted approach in terms of education, uh, in terms of letting the public know what maybe through PSAs, maybe through, uh, you know, when people get admitted to hospitals or interact with the healthcare system, uh, giving pamphlets, you know, giving information, having the doctor have a conversation uh, with them about this. Um, would be would be a step in the right direction, absolutely. Because uh, when it comes to transplant and donation, a lot of the time now, um, like you're mentioning in advanced directives uh, and whatnot, these these sorts of end of, end of life decisions are made when people are already hospitalized, um, and you know that that only captures a small proportion of the human population, right? That that would interact, that, that would be hospitalized, um, you know, in any in any meaningful frequency, right? We're talking about definitely the minority of the population. Um, and the rest of the people, maybe they'll see a doctor once every few years, maybe never. Um, so I think, yeah, more outreach is definitely going to be a good thing. Um, I did want to, did want to switch gears a little bit just because, uh, we are, we do want to be respectful towards the time. Um, so I want to get to, you know, one question that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And this is, this is about, uh, science fiction, basically it's science fiction right now, but it could become scientific reality. Uh, in a hundred years. So I want to get your thoughts on it. So here's the situation is that, you know, notwithstanding what happened over the past couple of years, uh, human life expectancy has been generally increasing. Uh, so the average uh, American lives about 80 years, uh, you know, plus or minus a few less for men, uh, a little higher for women. Uh, and the number has skyrocketed uh, since like the 1800s um, because Predominantly, declines in infant mortality, better sanitation, hygiene, uh, and medical advancements. All, all the new drugs that we have, all the all the good stuff. Um, it saves a lot of lives. And over the next century, you know, I can't 
possibly predict what kind of technologies we're going to have. Um, but I, I can imagine that it's going to deliver, you know, similarly uh, noticeable increases in longevity once again, uh, to the point that we may eventually see humans live easily past the age of 100, uh, 100 years old, maybe even like 100, uh, 120 or 130 years old. Um, actually, I think there's some anecdotal evidence that, uh, that bears that out. I think the oldest, the longest lived woman on earth uh, died at about 122. Uh, she, was, she was a French lady who smoked all the time, ate a ton of butter, uh, was healthy until like the day she died. Uh, I'm really jealous. Um, but anyway, so, you know, assuming that these, these remarkable feats of like human ingenuity are probably going to happen, um, we don't have a playbook. We don't have a playbook for it. You know, humans are just totally inexperienced living that long. Uh, average life expectancy a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago would have been, you know, around my age. I mean, you know, that, like if we're talking about median life expectancy, um, if you if you survive past childhood, maybe you would live to your 50s or 60s. But 90 years old, 100 years old, 120 years old, we're not we're not used to that. We're not equipped to deal with it. Um, so that being said, when when death becomes such a. Such a vanishing possibility so not not necessarily so much of an inevitability as a possibility um along with i mean obviously you know there there's some certainties we do have to die and we do have to pay taxes right those are the certainties in life but beyond that like how does society adapt and i guess what are the main considerations that we should make um in a world where humans are regularly living um you know past a century yeah it's a great question i mean i think the the biggest thing that that you kind of mentioned in, in the question is, um, say that uh, French woman who lived to uh, 121, 122. Um, I think the most important thing that you kind of mentioned to me is that it, it sounds like the, the general consensus was that she was living a good and happy life up until the end. And I think that what we would have to really try and make sure you know, as far as, you know, goals of extending life is that we're also really extending, say, the, the good years of life, right? We want to make sure that people have a good quality of life. And, and from a societal standpoint, I think that that would mean that we probably need to adjust how we look at kind of caring for those at the end of life. And there are certainly societies around the world where individuals uh, live with family, live with loved ones until the end. And a fair number in our society are, are not blessed with that opportunity and do spend a significant amount of time in a place that most would say not choose to live, say uh, in a facility away from from families away from their loved ones. And I think from a societal perspective, if, if we're trying to really think about how we could continue to expand, say, years of good health and, and quality of life, I think that some of the more simplistic things we could do is, is try and make sure that people get significant support, hopefully the ability to spend time with others um, that they that care about them and that they care about. Um, but I think the the goal of say expanding our lives just to expand our lives uh, is is maybe missing the point if we're not really focused on 
what that quality of life is. So there would likely have to be some, you know, adjustments as far as how we take care of individuals as they're, you know, in their later years and maybe more vulnerable and unable to say care for themselves towards the end. Uh, and, and what resources is our society willing and able to provide to them if, if people are living longer? I don't know if that's going to mean that people are going to have to say work longer as well, right? Are we going to push the retirement age back? Are, are people living longer going to be able to work longer, right? How are we going to deal with the possibility that increased life, hopefully increased life with a good quality of life, is potentially going to lead to others having to support them, right? Whether that's more taxes, whether that's more time caring for others, whatever it may be. So I think the main thing that I would really focus on and, you know, often some of the conversations that we're having with patients and family members is what is a good quality of life to you? What is really important to you? What, what do you value? And how can we really focus on that? And it's not always about simply extending life. It's, it's not always quantity, right? It, it ought to really be focused on quality. And if it can be quality that's extended, fantastic. But I, I think we wouldn't want to focus more on extending lives without making certain that we can ensure that it would be a good quality of life. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just the points you touched on. Uh, so, so important, you know, to think about is that, you know, when we're looking at these, these demographic considerations, they, they, they affect economics, they affect, uh, you know, how we see ourselves as humans, uh, how we see our lives, um, you know, our, our prospects of the future is just so impactful. And obviously my dream is that uh, we end up looking like a Star Trek society and, uh, and that we, you know, just live in like a post-capitalist, uh, post-scarcity, you know, sort of society where the 80-year-olds can look like the 20-year-olds. But unfortunately, in the absence of that, um, these, are, these are definitely important considerations. And uh, on that note, uh, we want to thank you for your time, uh, Robert. Uh, we want to be respectful of your time as well. So, um, We'll go ahead and uh, end up the podcast here and, uh, you know, just say thank you once again. I think we learned we learned so much uh, from from the time that we've had with you. Uh, we have so many more questions and I wish we had more time. Uh, maybe maybe sometime in the future uh, we could have another conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to our sixth and final episode of season two, Medical Matters. And we will be back soon. <laughs>